Welcome to the Swamplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Today. I am Allie. And I am Boomer. Happy birthday, dear, dear Boomer. Boomer. <laughs> Happy birthday <laughs> to you. Oh, thank, thank you, thank you. I was not. I didn't think that we were going to do this on my. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to do that until yeah, I did. It, I was going to so. say I, I didn't know he was going to do it, but I had to join in. Also, syncing up audio of people singing um, with lag is a nightmare. So probably that'll sound like a total mess. Otherwise, our singing voice was masterful. So. Oh yeah, of course, and that is our gift to both Boomer and the audience. They were perfectly harmonized on my end. Aww. that's wonderful to hear. Happy birthday. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Did you get to celebrate your birthday in any extravagant ways over the weekend? Oh, well, we talked about it off mic, and I won't repeat any of those stories on mic. <laughs> <laughs> no incriminating evidence. I tried so hard. This has been like an elaborate like scrapbooking class to like get you to incriminate yourself. <laughs> the IRS like behind the other uh, side of the window. You're not going to get me, in. Detective Munch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, instead of... Recounting all of the uh, <laughs> totally legal things we've been doing on our free time. Uh, what movies have y'all been watching lately? Well, a couple of weeks ago, like the Friday after we uh, last recorded, Friday the 13th, was my sixth wedding anniversary. <laughs> and oh, wow. ooh, ooh, ooh. I know, nice. it's really weird. Like we've been together for 10 years, so it's like, yeah, it's a thing. But, you know, we did the whole like dinner and a movie, but we movie at home and we watched uh matrix resurrection which i know was on brandon's end of the year list and i also really enjoyed it yeah i thought it was great um and a lot of fun and i think the thing that i really like appreciated about it is it's this movie that came out last year but still looks just like the old matrix movies they didn't try and like fancy up the special effects and make them even more modern like they stuck to the style and i really appreciated that i'd say maybe the uh action and like effects have suffered a little bit yeah. <laughs> in the years since yeah uh there's a little like texture that's lost there but the ideas are big enough to make up yeah for it the mind. ideas are big enough and you know once again like i feel like so many reboots try to make everything look so sleek and but this one still is just like kept very much to the style and I, I liked that a lot that one sequence of neo like having to come up with ways to reboot the matrix and just fucking hating the exercise yes. uh, was like one of the most joyful moments in all of cinema last year yes it really stuck with me i thought it was very funny and clever yeah so you know sad keanu in a bathtub with a rubber duck on his head it's just <laughs> it's perfect i also liked that the ideas weren't like Everything is black and white. You could either live outside of the Matrix if you wanted to or not. I, I just, I liked that. I liked the idea of, like, not necessarily demonizing people's choices either by the end. Yeah, I could see why that particular filmmaker would have a uh, vested interest in breaking up that binary a little bit. Uh, yeah, I was, like, good. <laughs> and, there's, <laughs> and there's a lot of good binary jokes in the movie yes. about, like, code and everything else. Uh-huh. It's very good. So, yeah, I had a lot of fun with that one. I also, for the very first time, ever watched The Blair Witch Project. Oh, nice. Wow. I know. I really enjoyed it. I also cheered for the witch. It's one of those <laughs> movies where I'm like, these people are so obnoxious, and I do not blame her. But for her. Uh, which I know is not necessarily the point of the movie. And, I, you know, it's still spooky and chilling, no matter, like, 
what side you're on, but like at the same time I'm like, ugh, these guys. Is it from the perspective of them coming into her home and making a lot of noise? Yeah, they like mess up her like stick crafts and her cairns and <laughs> like, dudes, this is so rude. They deserve a timeout in the corner for their bad behavior. They do. You do. Um, and then, you know, watching the movie, like, explicitly is at the beginning of the movie that, like, she's returned people. She hasn't taken everyone. So, you know, it's not like she's, like, entirely out for blood. It just seems like, you know, she's got some victims in mind. You have to trust her judgment. Yeah. How do you feel about the reading of the text of that film as a narrative about uh, two men luring uh fellow co-head into the woods to like scare and murder her oh do we give that any credence no because there's a lot of things that oh, happen well, he does that throw away supernatural the map. That throws away the map and there are points where they just do things that seem more intended to antagonize her than anything yeah. else heather 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 yeah sorry it's like, how do you forget the names of the characters in this movie? They shout it a thousand times. Yeah, they shout them, yeah. <laughs> it's half the dialogue. Yeah. Do you count, like, that final scene where they're staring at the corner? Is that, like, an alibi? Like, that's them getting away with it? Like, staging evidence or something? I mean, the movie ends there. Yeah, Who's it to does say that there. they haven't, like, lured her there and they're just scaring her? And as soon as that, like, camera cuts, something else happens. Like... I this is a movie that falls into that thing that I like where it's possible that nothing supernatural happens. It doesn't give us an, a definitive answer either way. It's left ambiguous, which is I think yeah. why it has more staying power. Yeah. I hate this interpretation. <laughs> I was going to say this interpretation really uh messes with me, but also I'm like, oh. I don't want the real world in my fiction. Make it as unnatural as possible. I'm not saying that it has to be that way. I'm just saying that that is a way to read that text. And I it think is. that there's I think that there's an element of that even if the witch is real. Yeah. I think that there's an element of them of these two men torturing this woman for really no good goddamn reason other than their own jollies. Yeah. Or maybe like and you hubris, know, jealousy, envy, entitlement. They think they know better than her they do. for sure. I mean, I do really want the witch, but I can also see that reading. But I'm also with Brandon being like, no. Yeah, I'm not saying it's not legitimate. I'm just saying I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying is this. I like the witch. I understand that reading, but I do like the idea of a witch protecting her home from obnoxious student filmmakers. That's, who doesn't love that? You have a real chip on your shoulder about film school. I'm starting to learn that over the course of this podcast. I know, I know. Y'all y'all don't understand. <laughs> I feel like I'm like torturing you no. by making you talk about movie making as a process on this every couple no, of weeks. I know. It's I love movie making as a process. I did not love film school by the end of it. And there's a lot of people from film school that I don't love. It's putting it nicely. Who you'd love to feed to a witch. Yeah, I would love to feed them to a witch. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I think that's this movie's blur uh, for me. Is I'm like, there's a lot of people from film school I would feed to a witch. I also did a rewatch of the 1980s Firestarter. Because, you know, the new one just came out. But Right, right. It's amazing. I love it. That Tangerine Dream score. So good. Ooh. 
That's the first time I've ever been interested in seeing the movie, uh, is knowing that they did the score. Oh, you've never seen it? No. Oh Brandon, what? What? I missed that one somehow. Drew Barrymore as a youngster. I love her. David Keith as her dad, and like probably his best role. It's a fun movie, and it's also sad. <laughs> uh, it has very, like, I guess, Carrie vibes in that way, but it's a young Drew Barrymore. I always sort of imagined, like, a um, this would never be made. And it should never be made. But like for my own just like amusement, sometimes I like to imagine sort of a Scooby-Doo Stephen King mashup oh. where it's like this the mystery incorporated gang, but all of them are different characters from Stephen King novels Yeah, where Shaggy is Johnny Smith and Velma is Charlie from Firestarter yeah, that's and good. Daphne is Carrie yeah. and uh, they have Cujo. With them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is the van Christine? Or... Oh my God, that's so good. It <laughs> is now. Oh, and we should also point out not only is it David Keith as Charlie's dad in that original one, but it also stars Louise Fletcher, who you'll probably remember as the grandmother from <laughs> Flowers in the Attic. No, I'm kidding. She was also Kai Wen on yes, Deep Space Nine. And of Kai course. <laughs> <laughs> and of course. You know, won her Oscar for her role as Nurse Ratchet in yeah. Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. Or at least one of her Oscars for that. Also, uh, Martin Sheen. Oh, yeah. He's in it. I'm starting to realize as y'all are referencing all these other Stephen King movies that I might have like seen like a very small percentage of his adaptations over the years. Like I've seen all the big ones, but I don't even know if I've seen Cujo. I definitely haven't seen Christine. Wow. What? Uh, maybe maybe we need to do some of these. What are you calling the big ones? If it I don't know, like the, the Shining, Carrie. I did watch Sleepwalkers, which I realized is like an embarrassing small one, but it was because someone made me watch for this podcast and I loved it. So uh, I'm open to them. I just I just missed a lot of them growing up. Alice Krieger is uh, in Sleepwalkers. Of course, we all know her as the Borg Queen from First Contact. <laughs> <laughs> Just cranking him out. My bell hand's getting tired. <laughs> Lob him over the plate to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually going to reference a completely different sci-fi franchise in a minute here. I'm going to get my bike horn out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, maybe we'll have to do Firestarter, a Firestarter episode. Because little kid Drew Barrymore, I don't know. She's just precious. Okay. Oh, adorable. <laughs> yeah. Love it. And she has a um, disturbing habit in recent years of bringing back her Josie Grossy character. So she still dresses up like a little kid on television now. I don't know if y'all <laughs> seen clips of this, but she dresses in that character to interview people like the cast of like Dear Evan Hansen and like Pen15. And it oh, is wow. the oh. most absurd, so cringe you almost don't want to look, but it's like also like beautifully um surreal at the same time uh, it's performance art at its finest the only clip from her show that i have seen is the one with her and michelle pfeiffer where she you know they they briefly talk about what lies beneath and how michelle pfeiffer actually took inspiration from barrymore's performance at the beginning of that first scream and barrymore was like oh well you're gonna love this and she put up like a photo of you know that character from scream alongside Viper's character in Scarface and was like, look, that was your hair. Like I went into <laughs> that that filming and was like, make me Michelle Pfeiffer in Scarface. Wow. And of course, whenever it was circulating online on Twitter, the clip was tagged with the um 
the caption like you know drew and michelle right before filming do you want to make a bunch of gay guys have a stroke (laughs) (laughs) so yeah greatest daytime talk show hands down even though none of us have ever seen a full episode I'm willing to claim I that. did not even know this is a thing, and I feel really sad now. Except happy, because now I can check it out. Less good, in a way, like, I watched this other movie that's it's a little bit of a mess, um, but it's interesting, um, called The Dark and the Wicked. It's one of those movies where the story is... Um, I'm just gonna, like, it's not a good story. It's stupid. But... It really like delivers some really good scares. So basically, it's about a family. Like there's the mom and dad, and they live on this farmhouse. And the dad is dying, and they're two kids at the end of his life. And then spooky stuff starts happening, basically. And a lot of it is like unexplained. And by the end of the movie, I'm just gonna spoil the fact that you don't really get any better answers. But some really good scares. Um, the atmosphere is spooky. Oh, it's got one of those like, you know how newer horror movies have those like spooky, like crony, like noisy soundtracks. It's got one of those. I'm kind of a sucker for them. It's, just, it's like <laughs> tacky as hell of me, but I'm just like, oh yeah, I like that. It's a good way to create tension on a budget. Exactly, I mean, it works every time. It does. So you know, I don't think it's a great movie, but. I think if you're just looking for some scares at the end of the day or have I've been having um, I have a couple of friends in my pod and we've been doing Terror Tuesdays <laughs> we're calling them uh, where we together like every other Tuesday and watch scary movies um, it's a lot of it's fun but it's not the best movie ever but you know I wouldn't say I felt like my time was wasted it's just not as good as everything else I watched recently. So, you know, a note of like, not a perfect or like a movie. I also watched The Candyman from last year. Oh, what did you think? I enjoyed it a lot, actually. Me too. I had a lot of fun with it. And I love all the like shadow puppet things. I don't know, like, you know, a lot of people did not care for it that much. And I don't really... I don't know. I don't really understand it because I thought it was I thought it was fun. I enjoyed the look of it. I liked the new characters. I liked, you know, really covers like systemic and intergenerational like violence and trauma, especially like for lower income black people. And I like the idea of there being a bunch of different Candyman and not Candyman and not just the original. Like it's not just this one character it's like an archetype and a legend that has built over the years um so once again it's not like a perfect movie but yeah i really enjoyed it and i think i enjoyed it a lot more than i was led to believe by like people just kind of being like eh. i was on the same page with you and i think i know why people didn't like it though and i think the movie does it on purpose where it's <laughs> like the first candy man is extremely violent it's like really brutal when it, it actually does go for the throat. Uh-huh. Um, and this one specifically like pulls away from the violence. Like I'm thinking of that shot outside the apartment. I think he like kills an art dealer or something. Oh yeah. And, yeah. Um, and it's just shot from the window and it like zooms out. Zooms and zooms and zooms. So you can barely even see what's happening. Yeah. The movie like really de-emphasizes like on-screen violence. 
yes. to a, talk about more systemic stuff like you were just saying. Yeah. So if you're like a horror nerd looking for that like cathartic release through the violence, it like specifically withholds it from yes. you. Um, and I think it's doing that on purpose and it's interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. But I could see like going to the theater on like a Friday night for your like fun slasher movie and walking away like, what the fuck was that? Uh, yeah. like, <laughs> I want my candy, damn it. But uh, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It also had the best character name of any movie last year. One of the high school kids in the bathroom scene is named Boof. Oh, yeah, Boof. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just love the I love the idea that someone boofs enough in high school that their nickname is Boof. Boof yeah. Um, and finally, I uh, watched, as uh, Brandon has pointed out, one of the year's best movies. I, since it's on Netflix now, watched RRR. Yeah. And I loved it. It's so ridiculous. Of course you did. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> I have to say, I don't have a whole lot of experience with, like, Dean Bollywood or Tollywood movies. So, you know, I'm going into this basically almost blind to that cultural experience. And I'm like, I need more. I need more like this. So, oh, y'all got to help me out on that. But, you know, for a movie that long, you never lose interest. It's not a movie. Oh, yeah. It's I like I was nonstop throat hold. Yeah, it's just constantly ridiculous fun. And it just felt felt like any time I thought, oh, this movie can't get more ridiculous. Oh, it did. It very much did. I mean, it's easy to get hung up on that, too. And it's like also just like a really good movie about male friendship. Yes. And about um, colonialist like evils. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like a nationalist, like uh, celebrating India as a nation yeah. kind of thing, which has its shortcomings and problems in itself, but it's mostly about like shaming and defeating white oppressors oh uh, within that context, which is so fun. I love that. They're all just total caricatures. All of the British people are just like the stereotype, like British person. And I like that it is basically historic fan fiction because they're both based off of real life revolutionaries. And you know, I also don't know a whole lot about the Indian independence movement. And whenever in America you hear about it, you hear about Gandhi. You don't hear about these people who like armed tribes and like into like a guerrilla combat with the colonialists. So I really appreciated that, that like historical context too, because yeah, I mean, in the West we like try to talk about the non-violence and not stand behind the anger that group of people might possibly feel about the British Empire. Yeah, but it's like uh, historical on the level of like, what if, you know, Paul Bunyan and John Henry joined forces to kill the King of England? Like, exactly. it's, uh, it's basically like an Avengers superhero movie with these characters that did not meet in real life and give them these like inhuman powers to like yes. overthrow the British government. Historical fan fiction. Oh, yeah. Great. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking, like, maybe that genre is going to pick up this year because, like, between this and then, you know, Flag Means Death, like, we're getting some real good historical fan fiction. Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter was ahead of its time, apparently. It was. It was, apparently. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't see it. Me neither. That's <laughs> a title that sticks with you. Yeah. It is a title that sticks with you. I can't imagine it being good, honestly, but maybe, maybe it's fine. Maybe it's funner than I think. Um... That's what I've been watching. Um, I know it's your birthday, so um, what you've been watching in celebration? 
Well, I will go ahead and say uh, we've been watching a lot of Murder, She Wrote. And I will yes. once again say Murder, She Wrote is available for free on Peacock. You can go and watch it right now with advertisements. There's nothing stopping you. And it's amazing. Other than your dreams or perhaps geolocking. And it is amazing. Can't recommend it highly enough. And I will also say I'm really enjoying Strange New Worlds. I'll just throw those two things out there. And say that I did finally finish um, The Dark Forest, which is the, uh, or is it Death's End? Whichever is the the last two titles, I, I can't remember which one is which, but the last book in that uh, Chinese science fiction trilogy that started with The Three-Body Problem. It was great. Loved it. Big recommend. Definitely going to read something a little bit lighter now. Um, as far as what I have been Watching, I mentioned last time that Matt and I are watching the Coen Brothers movies because we have been watching Fargo and there are a lot of references in those seasons to other Coen Brothers movies, not just Fargo, especially this fourth season, which, you know, aired. It's not currently airing, but is the most recent season has a lot of references to Raising Arizona, including like specific lines. There's uh, two people who break out of prison. Um, in a sequence that's shot very similarly. I mean, there, no one comes like out of the ground because it's much more uh, <laughs> realistic than the surreality of Raising Arizona. But even the line, you know, you've got a panty on your head, appears in the fourth season of Fargo, as does Jesse Buckley, which we'll come back to in a minute. But uh, we were going to watch them in chronological order, and I was just able to get Raising Arizona first, and it was more what we were in the mood for at the time. So we circled back, and we have watched Blood Simple, from 1984. Have either of y'all seen it? I don't. No. I think I've just <laughs> seen Miller's Crossing. I don't think I've actually seen Blood Simple. I've never seen Miller's Crossing. I've never even seen Barton Fink. There's actually uh, like pretty major Oh, Barton Fink's me. the best. Barton Fink is so good. You know, I, I think about it. I mean, I've seen a lot of them. I saw Burn After Reading. I've seen A Brother Where Art Thou. You know, uh, I am one of the 12 people who really loved Hail Caesar. Barton Fink and Hail Caesar are my favorite, too. I was going to say, I really enjoyed Hail Caesar as well. Yeah, and, great film. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm in, I'm always in good company here. But yeah, Blood Simple is, it's good. It's not great. And it takes a while to get, like, really interesting. So the plot of it is that, you know, uh, Frances McDormand is Abby. She's married to this guy, Julian Marty, who everybody just calls Marty. And he owns this like shit kickers bar out in like rural Texas. And she gets Marty's employee, Ray, to like drive her to the bus station because she's going to leave him. But then, you know, along the way, they just decide to stop in at a motel and, and then they're going to run off together. So it turns out that Marty had previously hired this guy, Lauren Visser, to sort of be a private eye because he already assumed that Abby was cheating on him. And so, you know, there's evidence and then it just becomes this like sort of like southern, very arid but desert heat noir. Like noirs are such like city. To me, noir is a very city genre. It's not mm -hmm. a very country genre, you know. It belongs in the world of uh, Law and Order, not Andy Griffith, right? So to see it in this setting was very interesting. And there's some other really great uh, parts of it, like, you know, just it, it's not as funny as some of their other later dark comedies are, but just like No Country for Old Men had a joke or two in it, so did this one. Like at one point, 
after Abby has left, Marty decides to like go to Ray's house and and cause a scene, and then he drives off. But it's like a dead end, so he has to like come back past the house again while they laugh at him. It has a lot of really interesting things going on. I would recommend it, especially for y'all who already you know like the Coen Brothers. But it is a darker one, um, and it culminates in this really amazing sequence that reminded me a lot of a movie that I bring up probably too much, but Wait Until Dark, which is the film in which Audrey Hepburn plays a woman without sight who has a home invasion occur that she's able to sort of um, get the upper hand in by turning out or destroying all of the lamps in her apartment so that they're on equal footing. This has something sort of similar where there's it's more of a shootout situation uh, with uncurtained windows. And there's a lot going on because a character dies and then because of various other characters' minor moments of selfishness, every person believes that someone else they thought they could trust is the killer, even though it's none of them. It's someone who's a complete outside agent as far as any of them know, right? So it's a it's pretty good. I would recommend it. And then I also saw a movie that I have been meaning to see. So many years ago, when I first moved to where I live in 2015, my brother and I were going to go see The Lost World. Not The Lost World. <laughs> Jurassic World. <laughs> <laughs> but because there are so many theaters with the same name in this city, we ended up, he ended up buying the tickets for a theater that's like way north, almost out of town. And by the time we got there, because of traffic and everything, um, the movie had already started. And this place has a pretty strict policy. So they were like, we'll give you a rain check. And also we'll let you into any of these other movies that are about to start that don't have filled seats, you know, for free. And we're like, great. And so we had the option between uh, Mad Max Fury Road and Terminator Genesis. And of course, we chose Terminator Genesis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So now, seven years later, I finally seen that Max Fury Road, and it was so good. It's so good. I'm so glad you finally watched it, but also Terminator Genesis is a lot of fun, so I don't begrudge your choice. I like Genesis too, but I saw Mad Max Fury Road three times in the theater, which I definitely did not feel the need to do with Genesis. I I saw it (laughs) twice, so yeah. People hate Terminator Genesis. I know. Not these people. Not these people. You're a good company again. It's just, it's strange to me. Like, I did eventually see Jurassic World like a week or two later. And I know that neither of those movies were great, but it's shocking to me that Jurassic World got sequels and Terminator Genesis was just, they were like, mm, this is another another dead nub on the Terminator tree. Oh, <laughs> Let's try yeah. another branch. So Mad Max Fury Road, wow, it was great. Lived up to the hype. Really enjoyed it. I mean, it is very similar to the other Mad Max movies. Like, even if you just go and look at, like, the trailer Mm -hmm. for Road Warrior on YouTube right now, there's stuff in it that, you know, is pretty similar to what's in Fury Road, but it's just, like, the idea just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And I'll say, since this is a movie podcast, we don't always talk about, you know, what we do to occupy our time otherwise that's not media-related, but there are various wordle-esque or wordle inspired like movie and media type games uh browser games now that are available 
framed movie doll. And there's one that I really enjoy that gives you like a weekend and you have to guess what the five highest box office movies that weekend were. Oh my God. You can get up to 200 points per movie, but you can reveal little things at a time and like lose points for it. So like you can get the director or the lead or the tagline revealed to you and just lose 40 points, which is what I, I usually do. Cause I usually can figure it out either from the actor or the tagline. Um, the one on the day, either that we are recording this or that we, before we recorded this, uh, it was the last week of April in 2012. And I did know without having to reveal anything that cabin in the woods came out that weekend, because I went and saw that immediately after finishing uh, my last comprehensive exam for grad school. That was my reward to myself. And I was very excited to see it then. And I still enjoy it. But one of them recently was, I don't remember what year it was, but the tagline was Max is back and Tina's got him. And I was like, that's beyond Thunderdome. I know that yes. from the bottom of my heart. Yes. <laughs> so I had, that's the one that I remember most clearly and the one that this one most resembles, which I guess does make sense because timeline wise in the first movie, there is still kind of a society yeah. and it just gets worse. <laughs> just gets like, it's not great. It's not a utopian society. It's, it's like a fascistic dictatorship, but like there's a government, <laughs> there's like oversight, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's not just like, uh, you know, witness me and a Morton Joe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I really liked it. Charlize Theron was great. I'm not really like one of those people who has, tooted the horn of tom hardy uh, who of course we all know for playing shinzon uh picard's clone in star trek nemesis but we don't really talk about him a lot and i know that he was very uh well regarded in certain sectors of the internet and i know that people love him now on this uh particular godless corner for venom but i thought that he was actually really great in this i can't help but think of the Brad Neely, like, where the Hardy at? Anytime I hear his name. And I guess as my bridge to the next thing that I want to talk about is we were watching it and there's the point where uh, Furiosa and Max and the ladies all get to the place that she was headed for. And there's a woman who is a seed keeper. And this, you know, I get... I get a lot of flack within my friend group for being like, nobody knows who you're talking about when you say Barbara Babcock, you know? Because my, my interests are very uh, eclectic and I enjoy getting to have these talks because y'all are always telling, saying the names of people that I don't know who the fuck y'all are talking about. I know about 5% of the actors you reference on this podcast. <laughs> I know that I'm not most knowledgeable of the actors that reference, but I did love that character. The actress playing her is Melissa Jaffer, who I was like, I turned to Matt and I was like, oh, that's Naranti from Farscape. Like that's that's how deep <laughs> that well goes. And you might you might also remember that she was one of the um tenants who lived above the bar in Starstruck. Oh, okay. So she has been around for like a long time. She had a minor role in that. She was Naranti in Farscape. And then I got to see her face again today, and I was very excited because I saw the trailer for George Miller's new movie that she oh. is go clearly going to be in because I saw her face. I really want to see that. It's, it's wild. 3,000 years of longing, yeah. and it looks great. But I saw that before my screening of 
men and i didn't know when i first got on tonight if anybody else would have seen it but then like i also while we were getting our mics set up and everything i saw that you had uh posted a link to your review on on the swamp flicks twitter brandon so i know that you've seen it as well saw it yesterday yeah it's great i'm glad to hear you say it's great because like after a weekend of just seeing nothing but constant negativity about that movie and then Alex Garland at large, like people are like retroactively hating his earlier films now. I'm like, I was almost talked out of seeing in the theater. So I was like, I guess I'll just wait till it's a library rental. Like I don't don't need to like put effort into seeing this big and large, but I ended up really enjoying it as well. So I'm glad to hear I wasn't alone in that because my uh, letterbox mutuals and my Twitter follows have not been uh, particularly kind to this movie. I was going to say everybody I've seen has been to it. And I'm like, oh, I want to see Oh, it. okay. But I also find, like, I think Alex Garland is, like, one of those directors that, like, I don't know. I just, I feel like I'm on his wavelengths a little bit. Like, I even like devs, and I was super skeptical going into it, so. I would say this is a huge departure for him, though, because it's not sci-fi, and it doesn't do the thing Boomer likes that you were referencing <laughs> earlier. It's, like, purely supernatural horror i don't look i don't want every movie to not be supernatural i just once in a while would like for to see a movie where there's at least for most of the narrative equal weight given to the possibility that there is a supernatural explanation or a rational one and the rational one be the resolution that's all i'm asking not every horror movie just has to be like a psychological thriller. I, I was worried this one was going to pull back and like strip away the layer of allegory, but it, it pretty much sticks with its central conceit to the end and doesn't deflate it in any way, which I appreciated. I, I was a little afraid it was going to be like, well, that was the world through her eyes, but this is what was actually happening. Uh, and it doesn't do yeah, that. Yeah, it doesn't. And in fact, it gives no resolution, which... This is a movie that I love that does that, and I loved it. Hell yeah! You know, I'm not gonna because <laughs> I I often I often I guess for me I feel like it was earned here, and a lot of times it just sort of feels like a gotcha, or like um, you know, the writer wasn't sure how to wrap things up, so they just kind of didn't. Here it comes to an inconclusive ending with intentionality. I mean, he was a writer and first. It spoke so, to me. You know. Yeah. Here, 28 days later and sunshine yeah sunshine i've never seen sunshine though um what was the one about the clones oh um oh the kazuo ashuguro adaptation uh nobody was here or nobody remembers i don't remember <laughs> uh, i read that novel i read the ashuguro novel it's a great um, no one belongs here more than you right yeah that sounds no good. it's like when I'm gone, what is yeah. it? It, it has a very, it, it's a great book and sounds like a good movie, I, or at least, I you know, like but, Ishiguro, but, uh, but it, it, the title is just like, it's so, never let me go. There we go. Uh, oh, no one belongs uh, here more than you is Miranda July. That's why those 30 seconds were more tense than the entirety of men. They were not. No, they were a very tense movie. Oh my God. There were moments I was because, so I think that for me, a lot of times we don't have to get into this. I don't want to beat this drum forever. I don't want to do this every day for the rest of my life. But I think that what can happen with me sometimes is if you're watching a movie and the consequences get to a supernatural point, 
it can deflate the tension a little bit depending on how it's handled within the film and its style. Like I would say hereditary is a great example of like how to do that as was this, but there are other movies I've seen where it sort of makes it feel like there are fewer consequences and makes it less realistic, I guess, to me at points, not that everything has to always be realistic or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But this one, it just made it more frightening that, you know, there didn't really seem to be a way out. And I really love some things that like this movie is in conversation with. It's funny to me because I guess the first time that I saw Jesse Buckley was in, uh, I'm thinking of ending things. And I remember us talking about it around that time. And Brandon, you said that you actually were disappointed when it stopped being a Jesse Buckley movie and became a Jesse Plemons movie. Yeah. Or something to that effect. And I get that, but to my eye, I didn't know who she was. And since then, you know, I obviously saw that and she is in this uh, fourth season of Fargo that I'm currently watching, which I think is very funny because Jesse Plemons was in the second season. And that movie was a Kaufman film. And the film that I feel like this is most in conversation with, or at least most easily lends itself to conversation with is Anomalisa. I can see that because of the face swapping stuff or face homogenizing, yeah. I guess is the more appropriate term. Yeah. Because, you know, this is a movie in which all of the men look the same as a statement about the universality of the dangerousness of men, like the danger that men represent just by, in many cases, existing, but also just like coming along to a peaceful place and making everything weird and creepy. Like when she, you know, she goes to this tunnel and she, you know, with her own echoing voice is able to create this like beautiful harmonization of music. And it's like, it's the first time that she really smiles and it's the longest time that she smiles in the whole movie. And then suddenly there's that movement that reveals that someone or something else is there. And that peaceful tranquility of just like this woman getting to be herself and what she believes to be an unobserved state, literally listening to her own voice, <laughs> you know, uh, is suddenly disrupted by this like presence that I don't know. It was, it was great. I really enjoyed it. Uh, very creepy, very scary, very gross in a way that I did not expect. Oh yeah. The ending is like cathartic body horror, squirmy mother level, like go for broke uh, theatrics in the last few minutes. If you, if you aren't shouting shunt, 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 (laughs) then I don't know what to tell you. It was a delight. Jesse Plemons. Fantastic. Jesse Buckley. (laughs) Jesse Buckley. Oh no, I'm doing it. Uh, Jesse Buckley, delightful. Um, And yeah, it's also just beautiful. There's so much green and it's so verdant. And there is sort of like a green man motif, which I would love to talk about more once you have seen it, Allie. But uh, it's like a face that's present on a font in the church. And, you know, it may or may not be you know it's you know it has some commentary on i think sort of this green man mythological character from like english folklore yeah it brings it into folk horror territory kind of like explicitly yeah 
Big Wicker Man vibes. And I'll also say it would go very well in conversation with what we're going to talk about later. But I, I guess so that we can get there. I'm going to hand it over to you, Brandon. <laughs> what have you been watching? Well, I watched a couple children's movies, which I guess is the opposite end of the spectrum from men. Uh, <laughs> I did something that y'all have done recently where I dipped my toe into the Disney Pixar offerings of recent years. Um, I watched that movie Turning Red. That was more of like a subject of like headlines and like hyperbolic yeah. praise a couple months ago. Yeah. It was not for me, which I knew before I watched it, like about five minutes in, I was just like exhausted already from like the, hey, my name is so-and-so and these are all my wacky friends and I'm going to take you on this tour of Toronto and let's ride the bus. It was just like so overstimulating and like cute, but just like not my tempo, I guess, that I was just like, why am I watching this children's film? I knew I was not going to be on board for this. But I will say, the only reason I'm really bringing it up, because I usually don't bring up st- stuff just to shit on it, uh, <laughs> is that um, we referenced when y'all were talking about Encanto, and then I brought up Coco, like, Disney Pixar films recently have had this, like, trend of, like, saying that you should obey and, like, forgive your family at your own expense in a way that, like, really pisses me off. And yeah. Turning Red is explicitly about how the opposite is true, like your friends and your like chosen community can matter more than your connection to your family. And like, you should value your own feelings and independence over your family's wishes. Um, so it's like a messaging piece for little kids. I thought it was very cool. It also has a lot of like Frank discussion of like puberty and menstruation, which you normally wouldn't see in a movie aimed at like eight to 10 year olds. So I don't know. I really appreciate it as like political messaging for children, but you know, the like 3d, smooth surface computer animation stuff just really isn't for me it reminded me of like when i let the good reviews from Moana talk me into going to see that in the theater and i like within 10 minutes i was like what am i doing here <laughs> like i made a huge mistake and i can't back out now because i'm in the in the theater in the seat uh i got the same feeling borrowing this from the library which is a much lower stakes interaction i have to watch these things not just like from my own curiosity and like i have more tolerance than Brandon or anybody else at Swamp Flicks. but also I work with kids and I know once I get a proper job again I'm gonna have to we have to be hip so the kids listen to me I think I'm the worst audience for these I think Brittany and Hannah have brought them up very positively a lot I'm just not the right audience and like it's easy to trick yourself into thinking like you have to be this well-rounded film consumer and you have to like appreciate everything that gets great (laughs) reviews like some shit's just not for you yeah and i need to like come to terms with that when it comes to this animated stuff i was proven wrong by that mitchell's in the machines movie last year i did appreciate that one a little more but in general um i also am bringing up turning red because it's a big loud expressive overstimulating movie and it has this one moment of calm in this like fictional forest that's like within these characters psyche it's like the spiritual space where everything gets really quiet and the main character meets a younger version of her mom in these like psychic woods and about two days later i went to the theater to see celine skiyama's petite mama and it was the same vibe of that like moment of calm but for the entire runtime of that movie so like instead of that really bright, sugary, fast and loud style of like children's filmmaking. Celine Skiyama made a movie for kids. It's 
in French subtitled. So I don't know if it'll translate to most American children, but it, it feels like it's for the same age range. That feels more like, I don't know, like the secret garden or the secret of Roan Inish, which we talked about on this podcast. You know, it's like that calmer, like more quietly magical style of like live action children's filmmaking from when we were little kids. I mean, I found it very sweet and it happened to share a major plot point and premise with Turning Red in a way that I did not expect because I feel like very different movies to my eye. So I don't know. It, it was like a kind of a minor Skiyama, I think. Um, I would say even her stop motion children's movie that she wrote, My Life as a Zucchini, is even more substantial than Petite Mama. But I, I really liked it still. Uh, I've yet to see a movie from her I didn't appreciate, and this one was no different than that. And then finally, a recommendation for you both. Due to the collective interest around here for Dario Argento. I saw his acting debut as a feature-length lead in a film. What? Yeah, what? He stars in the new Gaspar Noé film, Vortex. Oh. So Gaspar Noé is usually, you know, making very bombastic movies about how drugs are cool. And I was like... going to say, he's, he's very, like, to be honest, he's one of those not-for-me, or at least in the past, filmmakers, he seems like so edge-lordy. He is, and I'm usually turned off by him too, but like... Something about Climax really won me over. Like, I've been, like, waiting for a Gaspar Noe movie to, like, win my favor. And Climax was, like, one of my favorite movies, whatever year that came out, like, 2019. Like, just a really, like, exhausting party gone to hell experience that I really appreciated in a way that I never got his stuff before. But apparently he was partying a little too hard. And around that time, after that movie came out, he, on New Year's Eve... I think went a little too hard and gave himself some kind of like brain aneurysm or stroke. Oh, no. Oh, my. And in the wake of that, started thinking about his own mortality and made this movie starring Dario Argento and Francois Lebrun, who um, was like a bigger deal as a young actress in like the French New Wave era. They play an old married couple living in this apartment together. And Argento is... um, suffering from like heart attacks and like heart failure problems as he gets older and his wife starts to lose her mental facilities and is suffering from dementia and they are struggling to take care of each other and the only other person in their life is their son who is a drug addict and a single father um so he like is very sweet and like wants to be there to help them but like his capacity to stop them from hurting themselves and to make sure they're like taken care of is like kind of failing them it's a like softer, like more earnest Gaspar Noé film. Like it like really is emotional and like really like thoughtful in a way that he usually isn't like very introspective. In addition to his health failing, you can tell he's like really worried about his stuff now that he's like, uh, you know, been on the brink of death. Like a lot of this movie is just got books and records. And like, I think Argento's playing a retired like film critic or something. Cause he's like writing about movies and dreams. Um, on this manuscript mm. that uh, he's struggling to get finished with all this like medical stuff going on. So there's just like films and just physical media and just like loose manuscript pages and all kinds of stuff just cluttering this apartment. And um, one of the reasons they don't want to go to a home is like, they don't want to lose all this stuff that like tethers them to the physical world. And like uh, losing the stuff would be like losing their like place here in like reality. And because it's Gaspar Noe, though, like, it still has a visual gimmick to it, which I feel like is where it'll divide most people. 
it's told entirely in De Palma split screens. So like Argento's character will be on the left in a tight four by three frame. And then LeBrun's character will be on the right in a tight four by three frame. And sometimes they swap, but it's in real time, like showing their different isolated lives within the same apartment with their own separate problems. And um, they, they interact sometimes and the like dissonance between the two images being stretched is interesting, but for the most of the runtime, they're like not even in the same room, even though they share the same space. So I don't know. It's, it's a really interesting movie. I, I thought it was one of his best, but your tolerance for him as a director will, will vary. Yeah. But I think having Argento there and that split screen gimmick might be of interest to people outside of, you know, Noe's provocations usually. Yeah, I think really what did it is I saw Irreversible and I was like... Oh, I hate that movie. Yeah. I was going to say, I can't. I can't with this guy. Yeah, fuck that movie. I agree. The movie is awful. Climax and Vortex feel like a new... I don't want to say more mature because he's still like up to his old tricks, but like yeah. a new like effectiveness in his work that... um I don't know, I'm more willing to engage with him now than I have ever had him before. One of those films where people would, years later, say, what was the film with? And they'd always remember the guy in the bath. I don't think people had ever seen anyone remove contact lenses on screen before. And it's done in such a kind of ritualistic, gruesome, gloating way. Moments like that stayed in people's minds for decades. And they may have forgotten some of the details of the plot, but that kind of impact lasts. It became one of those films that is a part of popular culture. For this episode, I made everybody watch Diabolique from 1955. It's about these three people. One is a terrible person who's a headmaster of this boarding school for young boys. One is his very sweet wife, who is the one with the money to fund this school, the money that is sent to her by her parents to explicitly run this school. Um, So the headmaster has none of his own money. He is resentful of that. And the third person that is the main character of this movie is the husband's mistress. He's kind of got that, like, tough as nails, like, blasé, French cool attitude. A real femme fatale. Yeah. So the wife, Christina, and the mistress, Nicole, band together to murder the uh, headmaster. They have a plan. They go through with it. They drown him in Nicole's bathroom of the home that she owns. And after that, things get a little tense for everyone. His body goes missing from the pool at the school they dump him in his suit that he was wearing comes back from the dry cleaners it's inexplicable eventually in the newspaper the wife sees that a body has been found at the river she goes to the morgue to see if it's him it isn't but while at the morgue she runs into this retired detective who has very like Columbo vibes And he kind of inserts himself into this situation, 
helping her try to find her husband and this very Columbo like invasive following around asking questions poking into things while more and more inexplicable like things that point to her husband being back from the dead keep happening I, I guess I should go through the, the rest of it. Um, Do we want to spoil it? Even though the movie um, explicitly, explicitly tells you, yeah. don't be diabolical. Do not spoil this. Don't be a devil. Do not spoil it. I think we, we're going to have to. I think it's okay. Yeah, I mean. If it's over like, half a century old. <laughs> I don't. Like, I'm going to ruin it for my friends out there. I'm a devil. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, Christina's health. She's always had this heart problem. Her health begins to fail. And all of the stress of everything is wearing down on her. Students are seeing him. He's appearing in the class picture through the windows. She is awoken one night to the sounds of somebody walking around and lights turning off and on. She leaves the room to go take a look. She hears the typewriter in his office going off. It's very like all work and no play but it's just his name written over and over again on the paper. And she ends up running to the bathroom to splash cool water on her face. And then in the bathtub is his body, much like it was when they killed him. And he slowly begins to rise and she has a heart attack. She's literally scared to death. And we find out that the husband and the mistress have planned this all along to kill her and have her money and have their own life. Yeah, uh, what'd y'all think of this? Well, I kind of wish I didn't know there was a big twist coming because like, if you just even look up the title of this movie, I think the first thing people reference is like, this was the first big movie to have a twist. Like the twist. I didn't know. Like the central thing here. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know when I went into it either. So, this isn't my first time seeing it, but I didn't know when I first watched it that there was going to be a twist. And I, whenever we're going to watch something for the show, I learn as little about it as possible so that it's as fresh an experience as possible. I guess I don't do a lot of research beforehand, but like, I don't know. It's just like, I guess something that's like known about the movie. So like even like the most cursory, just like looking up what it is we're going to watch. It was like, oh, okay. It's like a twist, like ground zero for like the twist. It's like a movie thing. Like. I think Psycho was like the one from Hitchcock that like told yeah. people not to go into the theater after the first reel has started and like don't reveal details people haven't seen it yet. That felt like ground zero. Maybe it's just because it's like a you know more heavily American distributed film. Yeah. For this style of like storytelling, but it, it really started with this one. So because of that revelation, like I kind of had guessed what the twist was before the second bathtub scene at the end. And then there's that last moment where it's revealed that the woman who died is still around on school grounds. Like the same kid that saw the ghost of the headmaster also saw the ghost of his wife. Or I mean, he says that, but he's also established as a pathological liar. liar. Uh, but he gets his slingshot back. Yeah, he does. He's got like a boy cried wolf situation yeah. going on. Yeah. But I read that last moment in a way that I don't think this movie is trying to imply or even is read by other people where like I thought that there was a second twist that she 
realized they were gaslighting her and got back at them by like sentencing them to prison. But I guess the more generic interpretation of that scene that we're supposed to gather is like, she is a full on fucking ghost now. And uh, this is actually a supernatural horror film. Yeah. It's the thing Boomer likes the whole movie. And so as you were talking about it, I was like, Oh, this is one of those that's like, is he a ghost? Is he not a ghost? (laughs) But it does both. It like it does both. okay, yeah. yeah. There's a natural explanation for him, and then a supernatural one for the second death in the film. If we accept that the child is telling the truth, we don't see any of that. I I don't accept that. I I, I don't accept that that child is telling the truth about getting his slingshot back from her. She just lives in the in the same place where they live. Like it's it's not like it would have been difficult to go into her room and get his his thing back. God, you know why I hate this? Because it is the least interesting <laughs> answer to that question. <laughs> is it? Yes. Is yeah. it? One hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, is. the kid got his slingshot back because he snuck in the office. I, God. <laughs> I totally think she's a ghost. Okay. All right. You're outnumbered. <laughs> yeah. I mean. I've said it before and I'll say it again. <laughs> Democracy just doesn't work. I think all three of us had three different interpretations of it, which is like, I thought at first, like, oh, she got one over on them. Oh, wait, no, we're supposed to read her as a ghost. So, like, I don't know. It's interesting that there's an, at least enough ambiguity that there's yeah. like different ways to read that last moment. Because she still could have, with the cop, gotten one over on them since she was buddy-buddy with him, this weird Columbo guy. Yeah, and when you say Columbo, it's not even like a vague, like maybe yeah. this inspired Columbo. It's like, oh, Columbo's in this movie. Columbo's in this movie, yeah. <laughs> but I just wish I didn't have that like expectation, like the way you walk into like every M. Night Shyamalan movie, like, like okay, what's the oh, twist this time? A twist. Uh, so I had that hanging over me, but I guess what really like stuck out to me besides that was just how influential this feels on like everything. Like, yeah. yeah, The Haunting and The Innocence are like two movies I saw recently that feel very directly tied to this. And then so much Alfred Hitchcock stuff that came yeah. after, especially Psycho. And I think Hitchcock wanted to do this novel, but instead Clouseau beat him to the punch. So he, got, he ended up adapting a different novel from the same writers into Vertigo instead. Uh, <laughs> so like, it's not even like a step removed. Like uh, Hitchcock like loved this source material and it feels like a lot of his storytelling style was like kind of, you know, inspired directly from it. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I just found it maybe even more intellectually interesting than I found it tense because I was just like, oh, wow, this feels so familiar to like a lot of things I love in yeah. genre stuff um, to the point where it both functions as like a great classic noir and a great classic ghost story, which are two things you don't necessarily think of at the same time, usually. Yeah. And I don't think Hitchcock would have had that final moment with the slingshot. I think uh, he would have um, done something a, a little more clever and unsupernatural, because it's very rare for him to actually like lean on mystical events. He would have had something. Say, has he ever? He would have showed her like winking in the window. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, like, I got him. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that just to me, it's just that such a small little moment. Like, I know that it's the last line of the movie, but to me, like the movie is already over at that point. And then it's just, to me, what we're talking about is like the question mark at the end of the phrase, the end, like whether or not it's supernatural, I don't really think is, is, is important. I guess I didn't, I guess it didn't really influence the way my reading of the film, the way that it influenced y'all's. Well, whether or not that's true, the movie's still playing with like horror tropes though. Yeah. Like, he's like this like zombie figure arising out of the bathtub, you know, with the white contacts. He's 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 a ghoul, 
even if there's like a reason like in the natural sense like why he would look like that he's like dressing as a ghoul to scare her yeah they're just gas it's just it's just like an update on gaslighting yeah but the movie's scaring the audience in that moment as well i think it's playing with both the supernatural and the natural in a way that's interesting yeah i mean the moment that i saw him in the bathtub i was like oh they've been tricking her that was the moment that i was like oh okay oh man the first time i saw it seeing him in the bathtub i was spooked so i didn't know it until he pulled the contacts out that's when i was like oh okay (laughs) I assumed it earlier on, and then I thought I was wrong when I rose out of the bathtub. I had the same experience my first time watching it. It's interesting coming from this from two different parties, though, because we want there to be ghosts and witches, and Boomer often wants it to just be people being just (laughs) which is fair. I guess just to me, you know, things don't have to necessarily be realistic. I've come a long way since originally expressing that opinion like for the first time but like i just think it's more interesting it's a more challenging way to write a story like it's much easier to have just like a supernatural explanation because then it sort of glosses over any sort of like plot holes that you might have not that i'm like a plot hole hunter and i think that like the concept of plot holes sucks but like we not to talk about murder she wrote again but murder she wrote always is internally consistent and you can almost always solve the crime along with jessica by noticing except for her having like a billion nieces and nephews (laughs) look she's she's she and frank both came from catholic families it makes sense to me but like i guess like you know one of the things that we haven't really talked about on here and maybe not even in the group chat much but i haven't written anything for the site in a while because i've been working on a longer writing project that's at like eighty six thousand words right now and for me when i look at things i look at the directing and you know but there is like part of it that appeals to the writerly part of my brain and to me being able to dismiss anything as like the result of like supernatural happenstance makes it seem like it wasn't written as cleverly as it could have been because when you have to keep keep yourself within a certain confine of reality it does mean that as a writer you're writing something that has a certain consistency that appeals to me and my sort of like uh, systems focused brain i went to school for poetry so i also have writer brain but like in a completely different way where i'm like looking for (laughs) transcendence and like breaking from reality and like that moment where like it feels like the floor is pulled from under you. And I think movies can do that really well and like tap into like that nightmare feeling of like, oh, reality's not what I think it is, or like, oh, things can be more beautiful than what I can, you know, experience with my five senses. And I think we talked a lot about that with Arabato last week. Yeah. But I think what's interesting about this movie is like it's kind of playing with both possibilities yeah. the entire time. I like it being in the middle. One of the two central women is convinced that something really fucked up and supernatural happened um, and she feels a lot of guilt over what happens she feels like god is punishing her by like using this ghost to like toy with her she got that that catholic guilt and the other one keeps rationalizing different things that might have happened with the body and like you know someone else found the body and moved it or someone someone knows about it and is fucking with us um, you know, she has, a, as we learn later, like an explanation for why she would continue to fuck with her partner in crime. But like, 
the movie's playing with that tension the entire time. Like, is this a ghost or is it real? And I really like that the last question mark at the end does it one last time after you feel like it's all tidy and cleaned up. Like, I think, I think that's a really smart way to like reintroduce unease into the movie. Yeah. Even if it is the last like 10 seconds. I, I think it's an important part of the structure of it. And I feel like the kid lying is just another part of the unease. Like, it just yeah. makes it even more like uncertain. Like he's been real, he's been truthful in the past, and he's also been a liar and child in the past. Like I, like him telling that story about, uh, what was it? He got in a fight with something ridiculous. Like that's just something kids would say. So like for them to be like, oh, he's a pathological liar. <laughs> He's a mythomaniac. I never would have guessed yeah. <laughs> that third interpretation that he just went and grabbed it out of her office. Yeah. Like that would never have occurred to me. And I love that three people watched the movie and their first thought was something completely different. Like that's very, very funny to me. Yeah. So, I mean, it just the fact that there are so many possibilities of it does just like muddy the water, leaves the audience at the end being like, well, what? And then, you know, you're told, I'll tell your friends. <laughs> Because I think there's so much up for interpretation and all the stuff going on. What did y'all think about the relationship between the two women? Because I also feel like it's a little bit ambiguous as to whether or not Christina is attracted to Nicole. And I mean, maybe that's just me coming from a place of wanting to read that into it. But, like, they're very affectionate towards one another for their roles in this man's life. I think in the novel, they're explicitly lesbians. Yeah. Or explicitly in a relationship with each other, at least. And I think the movie acknowledges that as much as it can without being censored. Yeah. And there's a lot of, like, touching of, like, the arm and the waist and, like, when the wife sends the mistress away after the body disappears it feels like a genuine romantic breakup yeah and not just like two friends like parting ways yeah so i think it's in the movie as much as it can be for the censorship of the time yeah i i I thought it was totally there i mean speaking of like stuff that it you know reminded me of that i've already seen like it reminded me a lot of like the children's hour or like Olivia or something like that. Like those like lesbian boarding school melodramas. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sure. Did have some children's. Interestingly, I think in the novel, they like flipped the gender of the person killed too. like the wife is killed. And it turns out that she was in a romantic relationship with the mistress, but like they right. flipped yeah. it for the movie so that his wife could have a bigger role on screen instead of just like being right the whole time it's the director's wife yeah right but the funny thing is like that actually makes it harder to hide the like yeah lesbian romance it, it really does. They, they share the screen a lot they share the screen a lot they have that sort of like bickering and that sort of like oh well if that was before i knew you you know that whole like conversation about like oh what did you say to him when he said to kill me like it felt very like oh well yeah i disliked you and then i knew you and you know very much like oh now i really would never but i think the fondness there is like so implied and i you know you were mentioning earlier like the haunting speaking of a movie where like the lesbianism is like super implied but like oh it's there it you know i i'm always like 
on the lookout for those things. And I think maybe, you know, that's what you have to do if you're trying to look for if you're trying to look for the gays in movies before a certain time period. I think the haunting's a lot more open about it. Oh yeah. It, like kind of uses the door that this one opens to like get more past the censors on that exact same topic. Yeah. I'll tell you what's really annoying is I watched the uh, 90s remake of this with Isabel Nanjani and um, Sharon Stone in it. Sharon Stone. It's marketed like the, you know, 90s erotic thriller remake of Diablique. <laughs> and you would think that the 90s version would like really play up the sexual tension between the two of them. Yeah. And like, okay, now the censors are not paying attention at all. Let's get away with as much as we can. Um, and there's like barely any sex in the movie. The two of them don't have sex at all with each other. And it's just as implied through like I... touching and like maybe a kiss on the cheek and not like directly discussed, which I found super disappointing. <laughs> because <laughs> i thought it was gonna like really leer um and like really go over the top with that like high style eroticism of yeah. its era and it, it really just didn't take advantage of that at all so really you just have like a trashy like colorized remake of a great film only only really worth it for sharon stone's outfits there's really not much else going on in it she dresses like peggy bundy the entire time <laughs> oh fascinating and kathy bates gets to play the columbo archetype which is fun oh yeah that would be fun I mean, outfits here, I kind of love. I kind of, I had a moment rewatching this where I was like, oh, trench coat over the head scarf look. That's that's such a good, like, is my husband dead or alive sort of outfit. <laughs> I loved this, by the way. I don't want it to seem like I didn't just because we're, we're having discourse about how we feel about how it aligns with our worldviews. I was kind of operating on a base assumption that everyone loved yeah, this movie. Yeah, I, I was too. <laughs> so, okay, so, great. Yeah. I love, my, I, I honestly think my favorite bit was like the moment where they have to like come up with a reason to drain the pool. Oh, yeah. And so she just like, she just like kind of throws the keys in the pool and makes a child try to go get it. Oh, it reminded me a lot of... um that third season of Arrested Development when the model home is collapsing oh, yeah. and Joe is like, children, you're small. Go crawl under the house and find out what's <laughs> happening. And they're like, no, Joe, we don't want to crawl under the house. It made me think of that because it was just like, I guess that is the best way uh, when, uh, for them to think of, you know, draining the pool without uh, arousing suspicion. But at the same time, one thing, okay, so I didn't know that there was a twist coming. I thought that this was going to be more of like a crime drama. Um, I didn't think anything supernatural was really happening for a long time. My my biggest thought, because it takes them a really long time to kill him and come back. Like it takes up the first hour of this movie. So what I was like noticing and picking out while watching it were all of the moments where Nicole kept saying like, oh, I've thought of everything. I've thought of everything. Don't worry about it. And how each individual encounter seemed to like give the lie to that. Like that she didn't even seem to really account for her neighbors upstairs seeing them arrive together mm -hmm. or account for, uh, you know, the possibility that someone might try to get into the car with them or account for how to get back into the gate once they got back without having to wake someone up. Like, it was like, God, she didn't really think of anything. So I thought that this was going to be a movie about these two women kind of having to 
hide the murder that they had committed from the police while the police gathered all these clues from these individuals that they had strange interactions with. Like, that's what I thought this movie was going to be about. So it's really, there's like 40 minutes left where the first time that they, like the body, they go to look for it and it's gone. Like they spend a lot of time just waiting for someone to find the body and then deciding to, to do some slapstick key throwing <laughs> in order to have a reason to train it. I don't know. I just, by the time that it was like, oh, something spooky is happening. I thought that it was like a, my, th- I mean, I really thought it was like an out, out damn spot, Lady Macbeth kind of thing where her imagination was running away with her because of her guilt. I guess like the dry cleaning is the first like acknowledgement yeah. that something might be like really fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> like the fact that the dry cleaner like saw him or like, I think he like checked into a hotel and they're like, oh yeah, he was here earlier this week. And then eventually the child was a slingshot, which. I didn't think that the kid had hallucinated the principal. I was just like, oh, this kid, you know, he broke something and. He's just lying because sometimes kids lie because they do things that they don't really understand why they do them. They have poor impulse control. And then adults are like, why did you do this? And they don't have a reason because the reason is their brains aren't fully developed. So they just lie. Like, that's just the way that it is. And so I didn't even at that point think, oh, he re- the principal really is back. It's not until there's the photograph that I'm like, oh. Are they just trying to make her think that she's crazy? But I didn't know who it was. I still had not guessed that it was Nicole. And maybe I'm just naive, but that's that's where I was while watching it. Especially because like Nicole's relationship with her seems so close. Like they really sell it. Yeah. If she had been a little nicer or a little meaner, it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have seemed like a real friendship. Mm-hmm. Like if she were just a little bit meaner, it would have tipped her hand a little too much. And if she had been a little bit nicer, we wouldn't have been able to buy that she was willing to like sleep with this woman's husband in the first place. She walks a really thin line of selling that believability by the point where you find out that she is involved. You wouldn't have imagined that that was the case. That is the one like fun, trashy variation in the 90s remake is like she starts to regret what she did. And um, at the end, they go for this like girl power finale instead of uh <laughs> instead of them scaring the wife to death they like team up to kill the man uh <laughs> i don't know it's very stupid <laughs> i kind of yeah. like that though because i kind of hoped that it wasn't going to be the women plotting against each other but if little girl was as rich as it seemed like she was based off of the husbands talking about it then you know Anything for the money. I don't know. I don't know. Some people are like that. I don't know if it's like a um, mental block or something, but I can't think of any other like perfect harmony, like combination of, of like horror and noir like this. Like, I guess there's the original cat people. And then, you know, in the eighties, like maybe what's the one set in new Orleans with Louis Cipher played by uh, Robert De Niro, um, Angel, Angel Heart, Heart, yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> I feel like those, you know, approach that same combination of those two genres. But this felt special to me. Like, it's such a perfect balance. Where like, I, I feel like both of those movies I just referenced tip fully into horror, and they might have some like aesthetic resemblances to noir. But I, I feel pretty comfortable calling this a noir film even though it wasn't made in America by uh, Property Row 
expats from uh, World War Two, which is <laughs> how that genre got created in the first place. Uh, it, it has that like mood lighting and the femme fatale archetype and like people who are you know morally corrupted by their need for money or want for it. Smoking, <laughs> smoking and drinking. Yeah, has that. Yeah, it ticks all the boxes and still never feels that far away from a traditional horror film at the same time, which I think is kind of impressive. So, like, at, at one point, I'm like, I kind of wish Hitchcock had made this instead the way he wanted to, and, like, I feel like he would have made an even more stylish version of this movie, like, really, like, yeah. showier. His version would have been more interestingly filmed. Yeah, exactly. But I think he would have lost some of that balance between horror and noir that I found interesting the way it is. Yeah. So maybe it's for the best that he didn't. Yeah. And if we got Vertigo instead, that's a pretty good consolation prize. Yeah, Vertigo's, uh, <laughs> Vertigo's great. This is undeniably a great film, and it's available on Criterion Channel and HBO Max right now. I do not recommend watching the 90s remake. Uh, I don't know anything about its two made-for-TV remakes. I doubt either of them are particularly great either, uh, but it's interesting that anyone felt the need to do that, considering how influential this is on so many other movies you already know are great and don't need to waste your time trying to track down stuff that directly references it instead of all the other stuff that's indirectly inspired. Especially to do it and not even bring out the things you could get away with. Ah, oh, so frustrating. <laughs> I mean, Sharon Stone looks great in cigarette pants, but is that enough? I don't think so. <laughs> you need to do a little more well next week on the show we are talking about the genre of spoof movies speaking of erotic thriller remakes of noir films um Brittany wants to discuss a parody film called fatal instinct which you can guess from that title um is spoofing the erotic thriller genre like fatal attraction and basic instinct just combine those two titles halfway and um, Leslie Nielsen did up. I don't think he's in it, but I think it's that style of parody, that Zaz era goofballery. Uh, and we're going to talk about three other spoof movies after that. Nice. And in the meantime, check out SwampFlix.com for reviews of Men and Vortex and a lot of other stuff we talked about at the top of the episode. Bye, everybody. Bye. You and your museum of the precious collection you've housed in your covers My sinfulness threatened by my own admission And the bags are much too heavy In my insecure condition My pregnant mind